720 WGN, it's Let's Get Legal, powered by the Illinois State Bar Association. Hey everyone, I'm John Hanson. We're taking you up till 3 o'clock. Normally we're not on on Sundays, but in the fall here with Northwestern football, sometimes we get bumped to Sunday, and uh, we appreciate you joining us here today. 312-981-7200 is our phone number if you've got any questions for us or any thoughts or remembrances here on September 11th? Obviously, a very solemn day in our country's history. Hard to believe it's been 21 years since that uh, horrific day. I think everyone remembers where they were when they uh, heard the news. And everyone has uh, you know, their own unique story to tell. Uh, Gail called in a little earlier about how she is a nurse and they were in the middle of an operation uh, during September 11th. And obviously, they continued with what they were doing. And... Um, Audrey Anderson on a plane to London when that happened. Scary stuff there. So 312-917-200 if you want to jump in at any point. Let us know uh, your thoughts and remembrances here on this day. Michael Leonard joining us now. He's a federal defense attorney. Mike Leonard, not to put you on the spot, but we are sharing kind of stories about uh, you know 9-11 where you were. I'm sure you, like everyone else, were glued to what was happening, Mike. Oh, yeah. Isn't it incredible? I, I was just going to say what you just said. It's hard to believe that's 21 years. That's, it seems like so vivid. So yesterday, um, it's just incredible. When you watch those documentaries or yeah. footage of it, it just like comes right back and still seems impossible that someone could do that. Um, I was actually, uh, strange enough, on a flight to Detroit as that was happening. So, you know, we, we didn't receive any notice that anything was happening, but we landed like right as it all was occurring, which is like, I think we landed in Detroit like 9.15, and I still hadn't heard a word about it, and I was taking the rent-a-car bus to get my Hertz rent-a-car, and I remember these people excitedly, crazily talking to each other. I really couldn't understand. I mean, there was really such a, a level of, of concern, excitement. I didn't know what was going on, so I just called my wife from the payphone. I had payphones back then, mm-hmm. and she told me what had happened, and then I literally a second later saw this gigantic... Uh, kind of law enforcement, superpower vehicle go by, looks like something from Ghostbusters, you know, roaring by to, to come to the airport. And so, wow. of course, I was supposed to go to a court hearing and, you know, none, nothing happened that day. And I, and I spent, the day, uh, spent the day driving back from Detroit to Chicago in a rent-a-car and just, you know, listened, listening to the radio and just glued to all the coverage and, you know, had to stop, you know, somewhere to, so I could see the footage up to like a convenience store and they were just replaying it over and oh. over. And, uh, I remember probably like you, you know, everyone was concerned that, you know, what was going to be next. And even going through small towns in uh, rural America, they were making all sorts of plans, what they should do in their town, which was just remarkable, you know? Yeah. And I imagine that along with other things, uh, you know, has changed the security operations in, in federal courthouses and just, I don't know. I imagine they, did they do cases that week or did they wait a couple of days? Like I imagine it stopped everything for a bit. Yeah. Everything seemed to really just like, you know, everyone's entire life just seemed to shut down. Remember, remember the no planes in the air for a yeah. few days and in terms of, you know, your job just kind of became completely secondary for that, that whole week. And, I don't remember, you know, how long it was till we went back to court or had court, but certainly no one was doing anything for you know a good while there. Yeah, for sure. Three one two nine eight one seventy two hundred. If you want to share any thoughts 
about this day uh, 21 years ago. Pretty incredible uh, that it's been that long. Did you already, uh, did you already share where you yeah, were? Yeah, and I'll tell you, yeah, part. no, I was, um, I, I was a senior in high school at Downers Grove South High School, but very into politics and history and the news. And I read the student announcements at, at the high school and um, I, well, got, yeah. I got, I was about to start uh, and I got tapped on the shoulder by the principal, who I normally didn't, wouldn't see in that room. And he said, well, John, you're not going to be reading the announcements today. I have to read something of my own and just kind of sat and heard it as he announced it to the school. We didn't have televisions in the classrooms at the time that could actually see like live broadcasts. We had like they put the VCR in, right? When there's a substitute teacher, they just roll a tape in and play. We had TVs like that, but we weren't connected and, and we didn't have laptops. We didn't have our phones that had any sort of... We didn't, I don't think we had cell phones really even and nothing like that. I, I actually ended up leaving school. I just I lived across the street from high school and I just went, I'm going to go home for a little bit. And I popped a tape in the VCR to record ABC News that day and hear Peter Jennings take on everything. And um, then went back yeah. to school and it was just eerie. It was just very strange. And uh, and as a as a 18 or I think I was 17 at the time, we were all worried that, you know, maybe and selfishly so shouldn't have been. But worried that would they be would we all be drafted you know right like we didn't know interesting yeah yeah i didn't think about that as as a young person i I didn't know that that would be kind of on the radar that's interesting yeah oh yeah because i think we were all starting to get you know at 18 you have to register uh at least to to, for the potential of a draft i I forget exactly the process but you all register i think i may have been going through that like just fulfilling all the information as you're about to turn 18 and just this happens and of course that's a selfish thought on a day like that but it's something that was stuck in our heads and we didn't know what was next and uh, yeah, just just a crazy time to think about, Mike. Yeah, do you remember how much TV we all watched, just oh. hour after hour, day after day? I mean, it was just you know you you couldn't stop watching, you know, and and you, but it was so tragic, but you couldn't stop watching and keep going back to the news and seeing, you know, if anything had positive had occurred, where they'd found anybody, and of course, oh, yeah. I think we all were under the false impression that you know maybe they'd find people, which is just probably in retrospect impossible, you know, for sure. All right, well, let's. Uh, I appreciate you sharing your thoughts on that, Mike. And 312-981-7200. Oh, uh, 708 says, my husband had a very unique experience. He was on a flight from Florida to Chicago. The pilot announced that the U.S. was under attack. He said there was dead silence from the plane. Yeah, I tell you what, I, I, I don't know what I would do as a pilot. I imagine you got to land first and then announce what had happened. I wouldn't want to frighten anyone in the middle of the flight, but at the same time, it's, I don't know, it's a, it's a difficult situation yeah. to handle. Interesting that they told them. I guess on the one hand, maybe you put people on alert that yeah, you know, be, will be watchful because you know there's there's multiple planes in here, so I'm sure every plane was thinking, "Are do we have somebody on here that's going to try something?" I mean, yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, crazy stuff. Three one two ninety one seventy two hundred. Hey, uh, I did want to ask you just quickly because I had you on last week when I was in for uh, Lisa Dent on Labor Day Monday after the special master had been granted in the Trump case, uh, the Mar-a-Lago former President Trump. And, uh, you know, we were both kind of talking about how we'd be surprised if the federal government or the DOJ, excuse me, appealed. And it turns out they did. And I was kind of surprised by that. Well, I think maybe they thought they had to do it because the last thing they want is to to sort of go along with precedent that suggests that during during a case before someone's ever even been charged, that they might have any obligation or a court might step in and say, hey, provide information about an affidavit you just used to get a search warrant in a case that you're just investigating. You haven't even charged anybody yet. So they're clearly worried about that prospect. And I don't think they want that 
to go unchallenged as precedent. So um, I, I'm not too surprised at that, and I think it's probably a good legal move. It certainly is going to slow things down unless they get an expedited ruling from the court. But it does create some real good legal issues because, you know, uh, as we've talked about before, the average person's lawyer is not going to be able to go to a court and say, hey, you know, they just issued a search warrant in this case where they're investigating me or my client. You know, we want some information now. You know, that's never going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is pretty pretty remarkable occurrence and something that really never happens. And it wouldn't happen but for, you know, the role of the possible defendant, you know, President Trump. For sure. Hey, uh, Mike Leonard, uh, I got to put you on hold here. We got to take a break before the news. Dennis and Ashley, stay on the line. We already got questions coming in for you, Mike. And uh, you can go to leonardtriallawyers.com uh, for more information about what he does. But we'll continue in the next hour after news from the Northwestern Medicine Newsroom here on WGN. Mike Leonard, hey, I would what's never... The score right? What's the score right now, John? What is the 10, current score? 10-7 49ers over the Bears. Ooh. A real slobber knocker or something like that. I don't know what you'd say, but it's a messy one over at Soldier Field. Mike Leonard, a federal defense attorney, and also you do a lot of great work uh, for whistleblower cases. Leonard at triallawyers.com is where you can go. You ready to take a couple calls, Mike? All the time, John. I'm ready. You do love the calls. And if you want to get one, you got any questions for someone who knows a lot. I want to to get stumped. I want to get criticized. Bring it it on, John. Oh, criticized. I can do that all on my own. I don't even need the callers. Let's go to Dennis (laughs) first. Hey, Dennis, how are you doing? Pretty good, yourselves? Good. Uh, what's your question? How does attorney-client privilege filter into the seizure of government documents at Mar-a-Lago? Ooh, interesting. Attorney-client privilege, like between the president and his attorneys while he was in office, you mean? Well, that's what they're claiming. There's, uh, there's something about attorney-client privilege, but there were no attorneys there. I mean, the attorneys weren't there trying anything. This is documents. What could be privileged? Mike, go ahead. Very good question. So what I think they've been referring to is when they do these searches, including this one, uh, sometimes they retrieve communications and other documents that, unbeknownst to them when they're going in there, might contain attorney-client communications. So it's the stuff that they're seizing. And, you know, this comes up, just to digress for a second, this comes up all the time when they issue a search warrant and maybe get some of these emails or communications in those, in those materials, just like in the Trump materials, there might be communications with counsel on could be anything because they, they take a broad net when they, when they get these documents from uh, the Trump residents. So what they had to do is the department of justice had to employ what's called a taint team, meaning people aren't the prosecutors on the case who wouldn't be charging Trump and prosecuting the case a different group to look through what they seized to see if within what they seized there's any attorney-client communications, mm-hmm. and then those would be excluded from the production that would go to the prosecutors who are investigating and handling the case. It would seem odd that there would be a lot of them. That seems unusual in this context because you're basically seizing stuff from the House that was uh, allegedly related to you know more uh, state secrets. But my, my understanding is the way that they stored and compiled and kind of threw together all sorts of boxes of documents from the White House that you did have in there of potential attorney-client communication. So that's what they're talking about. I just want to make sure I understood that. because So that it's a separate team that, that would analyze that and, and, and fish that out. Because you could say that, well, if the Department of Justice finds something in that attorney-client privileged information, yeah, that may never make it to a courtroom as evidence, but that could 
influence where they go next for their investigation. So they try and keep it out of the eyes of the investigators' hands or, uh, uh, before they see yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, so the idea would be the taint team wouldn't be able to disclose. You know, they would, they would, they would essentially preview the, the documents that were seized, uh, flag any attorney-client communications, and then those would not get produced. Those would not be part of the production to the investigators from what they seized. And so, yeah, it, it is a little controversial, and you're, you're relying upon the good faith of the DOJ that True. there's not going to be any leaking of information from one team to another, which, as a defense lawyer, it's concerning to me. Uh, but oddly, the, the other wrinkle on this is that, and this seems crazy, but it happens, the people who are reviewing the documents, even though they're attorney-client communications, they can take the position that, oh, well, what the lawyer is discussing with the client is relating to the commission of a crime, or it's in furtherance of the commission of a crime. And therefore, what's called the crime fraud exception would say that the investigators still get to see those documents. Hmm. And they might have to go to a, before a court to make a showing that this crime fraud exception applies to get these communications between a lawyer and his client where they claim that the client is trying to further his commission of his crime through his communications with his attorney. Very, in my view, very controversial and just have dealt with it recently in a case. In oh, interesting. Court. Now, do you, and I imagine you are able to, uh, if the president, former president was charged, there could be a hearing specifically about, hey, this was privileged documents, this was not about furthering a crime, I'm challenging this, and you could theoretically get that evidence thrown out? Oh, absolutely, yeah. That would be the subject of motion practice. You know, what would mo- mo- most likely happen is the government would file a motion saying that, it is appropriate to turn that stuff over to them. But, of course, the defense would attempt to oppose that and say nonsense. You know, uh, our, my communications to my client were not in furtherance of committing a crime. You, you can't have those, and a judge would have to make a ruling on, on that issue. Well, now you said it was controversial, so now I'm going to ask you straight up, as a defense attorney, do you think that there should be that exception about the furtherance of a crime, or is that just an avenue in which the Department of Justice has to kind of uh, be able to, to, to break that attorney-client privilege a little more than they should? Where do you fall on that? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's really troublesome, the fact that you have government lawyers looking through communications between counsel uh, and the client and the counsel. And then, first of all, looking at them at all, you know, it seems to me that you would take the position that any ones that are identified shouldn't be looked at further. You know, it's clearly a, you know who the counsel is, you know who the, the client Trump is, and anyone that are fall within that bucket of communications, you know, the government shouldn't be looking at in the first place. And then to have government lawyers reading them and then trying to make decisions that, oh, well, we think this is in furtherance of a crime, uh, we should get them anyways. It, it's all very troublesome to me as a defense lawyer, that's for sure. Right. The counter would be, though, and you would never be a part of this, but oh, they're, what if they're conspiring to further hide the crime? Shouldn't that be something the Department of Justice should be able to look at? That would be the other side of it, Michael, of course, as you know. Yeah, that, that's, the, that's the counter argument. But the, the problem is, you know, you, you essentially break that privilege just by, by this team, team looking at the documents. I, I have a problem with it right there. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, that's the argument that, you know, a client shouldn't be able to further his commission of criminal acts and then shield them, cloak them from disclosure because they're under the province of this attorney client communication. So that's the counter. And, you know, in some cases there might be a good argument for that. 
Yeah, well, that's that. That's on the after show when me and Mike go get a beer one day and we fight about. Yeah, that. you said you said it was a special Sunday show. So is it is it a couple extra hours? Why is it on Sunday? I don't know if you told us why this is a special Sunday show, John. Do, Do I have, have to tell Saturday? you everything, Mike? No, it's yeah. because uh, North- you just were you just too busy yesterday? Is that <laughs> is that what's happening here? No, I was absolutely not. Uh, Northwestern football it plays on WGN, as you know, oh, and okay. Uh, okay. that game kind of messes with our schedule a little bit. So we moved over to Sunday. It's a great Sunday to spend with you, Mike. Uh, even though you seem to be against it. Let's go to Ashley on uh, WG. Oh, thanks for the question, Dennis. It was a good one. Ashley, your your question. Thanks for holding. Yes, hi. Hi there. Thank you. Yes, my question is, what do you suggest is a good strategy to use um, when in trial the judge seems to be ruling against you when you introduce evidence or when you object? Oh, so like along the way that you're, you're not doing well, you seem to be overruled every time you try and uh, bring something up for the judge? What do you do moving forward is your question? Correct. Mm -hmm. Mike, your thoughts? Wow, John. Sounds like every federal criminal trial I've I've ever been involved with. (laughs) Um, But no, you you, you sometimes feel that way uh, on the federal side, uh, on our side of the the case, because it seems like the case law that has developed in federal criminal cases, it seems like it's always against you. That's kind of how you feel. And so, it's a really good question because it comes up all the time during trial. You know, you're getting objections by the government to statements or information or evidence you're trying to admit into evidence, you know, through a witness who's on the stand and feels like, wow, you know, I'm not getting anything in evidence. They're sustaining all the government's objections. And it didn't seem like that when, when it was the government's turn. That's, that's how you always feel in these cases. And I'm not saying that's universal, but, you know, there's only so much you can do, you know, when the judge sustains an objection in front of the jury, you know, sometimes you can ask for a sidebar and sometimes the judge will give you that. And sometimes he won't, uh, you see it on TV all the time, but you know, some judges don't like those sidebars, but sometimes you have to sort of make a record, so to speak at that moment. And you want to make a sidebar to try to further argue and try to convince the judge that the ruling they just gave is incorrect and explain why you're offering the evidence and why it should be admitted. And then there's another thing you might have to do. You might have to ask the judge to make what's called an offer of proof. And I don't want to get too technical, John, because I know you don't like going down there in the weeds. Mm-hmm. But um, what happens is, let's say the judge says, okay, no, your witness can't testify to that. You know, that statement is not coming in. And so you may have to make a record either then or later outside the presence of the jury to put on the record. If the witness had been allowed to testify, here's what he would have said, Right. And the reason for that is if a case goes up on appeal ah. and you're arguing, hey, the judge was wrong. They should have let my witness testify about X, Y, or Z. If there's no record of what they would have said, if they hadn't allowed to testify, then the appellate court really has nothing to review. Oh, interesting. Um, so, yeah, you, you really just have to keep fighting. You might have to show the judge case law or cite case law to them that supports your position. And you just got to keep pushing. But, but that really, that situation, it, it really happens all the time. Thanks for the call, Ashley. That was a great question. Uh, Mike, that was not too in the weeds for me, okay? I got, we were good there. Uh, it's kind of like, I imagine a little bit, it's like uh, when you're a baseball coach, you want to argue with the umpire. You know you're not going to win that specific argument, but you just want to let that umpire know, hey, I'm, hey, I'm still on this, and, and uh, hey, let's talk a little bit about this, and maybe they'll second think it the next time that comes around. Yeah, there's no question. I mean, and, and also, you got to think about the context this arises. So you have a witness on the stand, you have the jury, typically, you know, because most of my cases are jury trials. And so you ask the witness a question and, you know, the anticipation that you're going to get in a particular piece of evidence to them, a, a statement or a document or whatever it is. And the judge, you know, is making kind of a snap decision. The other side says objection, relevance or objection, hearsay, whatever they say. And the judge is really making a decision in the moment, you know, sustained or overruled. 
and they may not really have appropriate amount of time to really think about that. And it might, it might be helpful for you to give them some argument about why you're offering that, why it's relevant, you know, why it's not hearsay, because they're, they're making these tough calls. Like you said, it's like they're calling balls and strikes in real time. And so sometimes, you know, oftentimes, of course, they will listen to you. And sometimes they'll understand, you know, the basis for your arguing that it should come in and, and they'll change their mind. But yeah, you, you do have to, uh, of course, assert your position, not just not just to sort of argue with the umpire, but to, you know, make sure that you're doing all your all you can. Right to get the stuff into evidence they need. And, and also, um, you know, to make your record for appeal. Because if you just drop these issues and don't complete the record, so to speak, then on appeal, you're going you're gonna to lose because you haven't, you know, preserved the issues that you need for the court. Interesting. All right, Mike Leonard, going to put you on hold. Ashley, thank you very much for the phone call. I want to find out how you prep for big cases. I know Mike Leonard has a bunch of them. Leonard at triallawyers.com. 312-815-6572. That's how you reach him. Quick break, then more on Let's Get Legal. 720 WGN. John Hanson here. Let's Get Legal. Powered by the Illinois State Bar Association. Hamp and OB. Andy Mazur, too, coming up uh, for the reaction to the Bears game. Mike Leonard for a couple more minutes here till 2.30. And, uh, Mike, I know you're preparing for a lot of uh, trials, and I know that you're a busy guy. Just how much work, I mean, is the preparation more, at least in terms of the hours you spend? I imagine it's way longer than the trial itself. Oh, yeah. So right now, as a matter of fact, we're immersed in a federal trial down here in St. Louis. I've been here for about 10 days. And uh, we'll probably finish up sometime mid to the end of this coming week. So we've probably got a good three to five days left of trial. But, yeah, you're spending so much time preparing for everything that it completely dwarfs the amount of time that you're actually in court. You know, we're in court typically starting at 9 a.m. and at 5. But, you know, that's not eight hours straight. You're probably getting five, six hours of testimony in each day, which is pretty good for a trial. But, you know, you're spending dozens and dozens of hours preparing your cross-examinations you know, preparing your opening statement, preparing your closing argument. So, yeah, you're probably spending, I don't know, five times as much time as you are preparing that you're actually in court. So it's it's grueling. You know, you get done at five and then grab some food, and then you, you're basically staying up till one in the morning, you know, getting ready for the next day, and it, it, the cycle goes on. So I imagine it's, that it's, it's, it's the most fun. It's the most fun in, in terms of being a lawyer that I can imagine. You know, so that, that's why I love it. I um, imagine that you get better as you are more experienced at it, right, like any job. But unlike other jobs, John, I sure, I sure, John, I sure hope so. <laughs> <laughs> but but each case is so different. You can't take time. It's not like you can rest on the laurels that you learned from the previous case. Like each case is so different, you have to tackle it each from scratch, essentially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nobody cares what you did in the last one, and yeah, that's that's kind of the fun thing, you know. Especially when you go to another state or another jurisdiction, they don't know who you are. They don't care who you are, and you know, even in your own ballpark, it doesn't matter. They don't care who you are either. You know, you have to get up and, and do your thing. And so, yeah, you're, you're starting from scratch in each case. But there's one thing that you met, mentioned that is, is very important and so true. You know, your development as a trial lawyer clearly just, you know, it's over time. And so you can think back to when you're first doing it, you know, 30 years ago in my case and versus now. And your, your confidence level, hopefully your skill level, all the things that you've experienced, all the issues that have come up with witnesses, you know, it all goes into what we call the litigator's briefcase, which is your head. And, uh, you know, you, it's kind of every time you go to trial, and particularly since we spend most of our time cross-examining witnesses on the defense side, you know, it's kind of a, each trial is kind of an incubator for experience in cross-examination you get, because you get so many different kinds and types of witnesses. That's kind of what makes it, you know, fun and challenging. All right. Who should be reaching out to you, Mike? 
on everybody. everybody. Yeah, every, no, uh, no matter what. You know, <laughs> primarily two types of matters, as you said, you know, our forte is federal criminal cases, trying those here in Chicago and elsewhere in the country, and also state criminal cases to trial. And then, as you mentioned, on the civil side, John, we, you know, frequently represent whistleblowers who are suing companies and sometimes individuals who are suing companies for such things as employment discrimination. Um, so those are those are our kind of bread and butter baskets, but we're just known for, you know, for trying cases. But before we close, John, I want to put you on the spot. Uh-oh. I know you, you always like to say I'm going to put you on the spot. Yeah. What is your prediction, so we can go back to the tape in about six months, what's your prediction for the Bears' record this season? Oh, man. Well, they got 17 games now. I'll go 8-9. and nine. <laughs> Wow. Really interesting. safe, not, not safe answer. No, I think that okay. well, that's more optimistic than Vegas. How about you? I'm going to go. I mean, I'm not going much further, but I was going to say 9-8, and eight, but I feel like since you're – you're going under. I, I'm going to go ten and seven, just just to be bold. Okay. okay, I like that. We'll have to check back in and see how we're doing. And uh, by the way, you said who's Brett- buys the other guy pizza, maybe or something yeah, like that. Yeah, I like that. I like that. I like that. All right, Mike. We'll talk soon. Okay. Take John. Thanks a lot. Take care. As always, LeonardTrialLawyers.com. Okay, we're going to take a break for the news. Then we got Stephen A. Leahy after this on WGN. <laughs> 